I'm going to start with a tale of two podcasts. I don't know about you. I'm a podcast fan. I've become kind of more of an intense one in recent years. Um, and so I'm going to relate a couple of instances from two different podcasts I've listened to recently. The first comes from the Brave New World of Kids podcasts. I don't know if any of you parents have experienced that, but it's like a thing, and there's some really fun stuff out there. Um, and one of my kids' favorites is this podcast called Pickle. The name doesn't actually refer, refer to preserved vegetables. Um, it's actually an ethics podcast for kids in which they consider these various situations where we like find ourselves, quote, in a pickle, right? So one of the recent episodes had to do with telling on someone, okay? There's lots of names for it, tattling, snitching, ratting. In, in Australia, it's apparently called dobbing. And uh, so in this episode, they explore when, if ever, should you tell on someone? And it can be like a complicated question, you know? I mean, in the episode, they give these like various scenarios. So your friend is climbing the high ropes in gym class at school. They're unsupervised. There's no mat. That is against the rules, right? Or what about someone in your class who's using their cell phone during science when it is not okay? Should you tell? Does it matter if the person is like just uh, a close friend who, who's just like a, an acquaintance or a close friend or like your brother? Would that make a difference, whether you would tell? Does it matter if their behavior is simply like breaking a rule? Maybe you think it's kind of a stupid rule or putting themselves like or someone else actually in danger in some way. And how does telling or not telling affect your relationship with the person in question, right? In the podcast, they take these questions to a number of different kids, and they have them kind of weigh in, respond with their own perspectives. So my own kids' opinions kind of mirror the diversity of points of view here as well. Some kids are more inclined to be like strict rule followers and say, you know what, rules are rules. If you broke the rule, then even if it's uncomfortable, I, I have to tell on you. There should be a consequence. Other kids think maybe it kind of depends on some of the circumstances. Other kids are more clear uh, from a different point of view. If you tell on a friend, even if they did something pretty bad, it's a betrayal, always. Second podcast moment comes from This American Life, okay? They recently did an episode, I love this show, um, this one I particularly recommend, uh, called Five Women, okay? It's a different kind of Me Too type of story in which a journalist is following up on one of these big stories that's been in the news about multiple sexual harassment claims against a prominent person in power. In this case, Don Hazen, the editor of Alternate. And they're diving deep into the histories of each of the women affected, trying to actually get a sense of how the harassment in question fit within their own breadth of experience with men. So where did this fit in their own um, their sexual history, their self-understandings of their sexuality, their impact, and their sexuality in the workplace, how they understood that. But one of the stories of the five was kind of different than the others. So for four of the women, they were women who worked with Dawn, and they told stories of various kinds. Sometimes it was an unwanted sexual advance from their supervisor. In one case, it was a workplace flirtation that turned into like a full-blown, multi-year affair. And you get this sense, hearing the stories, that it is important 
It's empowering for these women to be able to tell the stories, that, to bring these various incidents to light. They recognize this is a unique moment where we're able to say these things out loud and, and recognize they have meaning, right? That we need to be aware that this culture is problematic and needs to change. And then there's the story of Vivian. She had a bit of a different experience. As much as she, I'm sure, completely supports the Me Too movement, for her, it was personal in a different way because Vivian was Dawn's partner for 23 years. They owned a home together. They lived together for decades, not technically married, but it's, it's kind of a, a difference without, a distinction without a difference. Um, and so she just recently found out, as BuzzFeed was breaking the news, uh, that her partner of over two decades hadn't just flirted with women. I think she was aware of that. Um, that he hadn't just, you know, missed cues from some of his female coworkers and been a little too handsy, but he had had this multi-year affair over a decade before that she'd never known about. And you get the sense in hearing her that as embarrassing, because it's been embarrassing and costly as, his, uh, as her partners had this like public downfall, as embarrassing as that is, uh, the news about his affair is the most personally devastating and disorienting. It's the deepest sense of betrayal. She struggles to make sense of it in the narrative she had of their life. What were we doing when that was happening? Whose parent was ill that we were caring for? What were the other pieces going on in our life? And I thought you were with me. She struggles to figure out what it means for her place in his heart. In her words, she says, I want to know about stupid things. Like, did they share the music that we love? You know, things like that. Things that have always felt very special and intimate. I want to know what was shared that's always felt exclusive. So we were watching a movie the other night, she says, and one character was holding another in a certain way. And I just broke down and just said, did you hold her that way? And he said, no, when I saw that, I just thought, that's you and me. And I believe him. Both of these two podcast moments, in different ways, relate to questions of faithfulness in relationships. They both relate to the characteristic of fidelity, as well as its nemesis, betrayal. So what is fidelity? It's kind of a word that's fallen out of fashion these days. Okay, but the dictionary definition says, and I put this on your sheet, you have, um, you have handouts you're welcome to use, you don't need to use them, but if they're useful, feel free. Um, so the dictionary definition, it's there at the top, faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief demonstrated by continual lo continuing loyalty and support. Faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. Well, today is our final teaching in this Lenten series I've been doing called Character Matters. And in this series, we've dis been discussing the importance of considering personal character, in a, particularly in a culture and a moment where I think a lot of folks think it's not a thing we necessarily need to spend a lot of time or thought on. Okay, now, and I get it because I personally have experienced conversations around character to be sometimes, you know, like a conversation really about rigid behavior control, behavior management. That, that's not very interesting to me. Um, but 
what if it didn't have to just be about that? How might actually considering character be helpful to living a life that brings freedom, not just managing our behavior, right? but actually living a life that brings joy and hope and connection with others and with God? That's kind of the angle we've been taking. So we've been talking about honesty, generosity, altruism. And today I want to focus on this idea of fidelity. And as my examples, both sets of podcasts, I hope remind us, questions of relational faithfulness certainly do impact our intimate partnerships for those of us who are partnered, but fidelity isn't just about those. It's not just for married people, partnered people. I'd like to suggest that fidelity and betrayal are relevant to all of our significant relationships. They're relevant to our friendships, relevant to our connections with family. They're relevant to our parenting. They're relevant to our connection with God. Jesus was never married, but he understood what it meant to be faithful in relationship and to be unfaithful. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness impacted him greatly. So today, we're going to take a look at a few parts of a story that come toward the end of the life of Jesus. And in these passages, we're going to see what I think are a number of moments that demonstrate ways we can be impacted in our relationships by fidelity as well as by betrayal. So these parts of the story come from Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. A couple weeks ago, we were looking um, at at a portion from that last week in Mark, and this is just a couple chapters later, okay? Well, it's in that season we're about to acknowledge next week, Holy Week. So let's pick it up at the top of Mark 14. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, so there won't be a riot among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of costly aromatic oil from pure nard. And after breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head. But some who were present indignantly said to one another, Ugh, why this waste of expensive ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. So they spoke angrily to her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you. You can do for that good for them whenever you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus into their hands. And when they heard this, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. All right, so we're going to have other, we're going to look at a little more in Mark, but we'll stop here for now. Already you see here, Mark, the author, kind of painting this picture for us of contrasts and how various people are relating to Jesus, how they're demonstrating their feelings towards him. Okay, so first we hear about the religious elites who have no allegiance to Jesus at all. They are not on his side. They are plotting to take him down. They're not part of his circle. 
But right after, we hear about, like, Jesus' crew. The folks that he's spending these last intimate moments of his last days with. He's being hosted for dinner by someone named Simon the leper. This is the only place we hear of this person. But there's like a story behind that, right? The fact that he's hosting a dinner must mean that he was healed of leprosy, that Jesus must have healed him. Because if you're able to be like hosting people, it means you are no longer a leper, right? You can't be active in leprosy and be in society. So we know this guy is hosting this dinner, and these friends are there, his disciples, and there's also this woman. In Mark, he doesn't name her. We don't know who she is. Now, John tells the same story, and in his version, he says it's Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, the one who sat at Jesus' feet to learn Torah from the rabbi. Jesus said it was a good thing. The one who saw her brother Lazarus be called by Jesus out of the tomb. So likely it's her. And here she is at this party at Simon's house, and she brings out this very expensive bottle of perfume worth a year's wages. And she doesn't just like pop the cork and pour out an ounce. This woman expends the whole bottle of perfume on anointing Jesus. And it's like very extravagant, very luxurious. And some of Jesus' closest followers, they are very offended. They don't get it. Isn't this like an unwise use of funds? I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago about, you know, good stewardship. Shouldn't she be a better steward of her resources? I mean, if she wanted to be helpful, she should sell the perfume and make a donation to the ministry. Feed the poor. Why does she have to splurge in this way? This could have been allocated more wisely and efficiently. But Jesus praises the woman. He praises her for this act of faithfulness. He corrects his followers for their critique. Why? Are they wrong to want to serve the poor? I mean, isn't that also definitely important and good? And this, I think, gives us our first insight on fidelity. Okay, I'm going to call it lesson number one on fidelity today. Fidelity is not simply, and you can fill in the blanks if you want, about evaluating actions as morally right or wrong. Fidelity considers how our actions work to build up or break down our relationships. Does that make sense? Fidelity is not simply about evaluating actions as morally right or wrong. Fidelity considers how our actions work to build up or break down our relationships. It's a difference. There's a nuance here. It's not black or white. It's about what does this relationship need in this moment? That's what's needed, right? Simon the leper, the woman with the perfume, maybe Mary, maybe not. These folks recognize something that Jesus' closest friends have perhaps started to take for granted. That their connection to Jesus is really precious. Their relationship with him is really important. And relationships aren't static. Right? You don't just simply have them or you don't. Relationships need to be tended. They're like living things. They, are, they need ongoing care. They are becoming stronger or weaker every day. Think about that. Your relationships with the people you care about are becoming stronger or weaker every day. Our actions towards one another have the direct impact on the strength of those relationships. So, of course, spending money on the poor is important and good, Of course, it's a morally good action. Jesus isn't dismissing that. He doesn't not value that. 
But relationship, connection personally to Jesus, taking the time to honor that relationship, and particularly being aware of the gravity of the moment they are in days before his death, this also has immense value. This woman seems to sense that there is a timeliness to this particular moment, right? In which choosing actions that honor the relationship have to have the priority. And he praises her for this insight. You can do good for the poor at any moment, but I won't always be here. You can't always show me love, affection, honor. In total contrast to this woman, we see Judas, right? One of the 12, one of the closest people in Jesus' circle who's been following him around, watching him being a part of the ministry. We're told elsewhere he's the treasurer of the group. He's been given the purse. And we get a sense that perhaps he's particularly offended by this, this whole interaction with the woman. Right? Elsewhere, in some of the other accounts, it makes it really seem that it's that offense that is kind of the tipping point for him. Right? That makes it, that kind of is the final impetus on his decision to betray Jesus. Thinking through how to spend money wisely, if that, perhaps it's just like a purely good motive. He really cares about stewardship. Even so, for him, his financial calculations have gotten in the way of his relational connection to Jesus. That's a problem. It seems to lead him ultimately not to actions of faithfulness, but to actions of betrayal. So the story goes on. We're going to skip ahead a bit. If we were just reading straight through Mark 14, uh, the next episode related would be the Last Supper. So I'll just kind of summarize. Jesus sends his followers ahead of him, makes preparations in the upper room of a house. They observe the Passover meal. He dines with them. He freaks them out a little bit by predicting one of them is going to betray him. Um, It's kind of a shiver down the spine moment, I bet. And then he breaks bread and he offers it to them, calling it his body. And he passes a glass of wine and calls it his blood. And he issues another cryptic prediction as they drink. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, he says. Then they go outside for a walk. And we, uh, we find ourselves in the second passage we're going to look at. This picks up at verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that was a quote from the prophet Zechariah. But after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all of them said the same thing. So we'll pause there. I got to say, I love the passion of Peter here. Right? I mean, he often talks a big game. He's the type to wear his heart on his sleeve. His words carry, in this instance, so much passion for Jesus. He's insisting emphatically, Mark says, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. It's a lovely sentiment. 
But we also know, if you've read the rest of the story, it's not true. It's not true. And Jesus isn't confused. You can kind of sense the resignation in his voice as he recalls the words of the prophet and gives them a heads up. You guys are going to fall away. (laughs) It's going to happen. And despite their vehement denials, perhaps maybe like a little overly enthusiastic to compensate for their own insecurity, Jesus is calling it right. And this little passage brings another insight into fidelity. Lesson number two. Fidelity expects us to demonstrate our intentions not just through words, but through actions that support them even when those actions are costly. Fidelity expects us to demonstrate our intentions, not just through words, but through actions that support them, even when those actions are costly. you got to back up what you say. Otherwise, your words, as well-meaning and generous and amazing as they are, they are useless. This is forever the conversation I'm having with my kids. I catch them doing something they know they're not supposed to do. They apologize. They can apologize so, you know, so abundantly. But their apologies don't feel very sincere to me when they just keep turning around and doing the same thing. For the wounded lover who has caught their partner cheating, it's not enough for the cheating partner to tell her spouse, it's over. She's madly in love with them. They're the only one for her. If she keeps Tinder on her phone, the words don't mean a whole lot. These disciples talk a big game, and they might even sincerely believe that their words are true. But they're only so meaningful if they don't have actions to support them. That's also part of faithfulness. Fidelity. All right, we're going to go into our last part of Mark 14, picking up at verse 32. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and became very troubled and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay alert. Going a little farther, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour would pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again, prayed the same thing, and when he came again, he found them sleeping. They could not keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to tell him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough of that! The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. And right away, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him came a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent by the chief priests and experts in the law and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. 
Arrest him. Lead him away under guard. When Judas arrived, he went up to Jesus immediately and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they took hold of him and arrested him. So here in this last passage, we see again and again these struggles with faithfulness, struggles with betrayal. And the various struggles that are accounted remind us that sometimes our failures of faithfulness are bold-faced, they are brazen, they are obvious, right? A kiss on the cheek, a sign of affection used to catalyze one's downfall, that's, that's pretty clear betrayal. Other betrayals are a lot more subtle. Right after, just right after protesting so vehemently that they would never fall away from Jesus, he calls his three closest friends, his posse, to him. And they have this chance to really demonstrate their faithfulness to him. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that moment, that night. He pulls you three aside, his very closest friends, and he looks you in the eyes. And you can tell that this guy, who you know well, he is always so cool, so collected. This dude is solid, and he has fallen apart. Like something is different. Mark says he is very troubled and distressed. You can imagine in Jesus that would be noticeable. And he tells them, like, I have never felt like this before. My soul is troubled to the point of death. Stay with me. Pray with me. Watch for me. Keep alert. And what do they do? They keep falling asleep. They can't help it. They just can't hang with Jesus in his agony. Three times it says they fall asleep. Three times they let him down. He keeps waking them up. You, they can't even keep each other awake. They keep falling asleep. Three times Peter will deny him. In these brazen and these subtle ways, Jesus' closest friends disappoint him. They betray him. It is agonizing. And these various ways that Jesus' friends are letting him down, I think, brings us to a third little lesson on fidelity. Fidelity requires different things from us at different times. Fidelity requires different things from us at different times. It's not just about one kind of thing. At times, fidelity does mean maybe resisting or redirecting our sexual desire when we recognize it's pulling us to someone beyond the partner we've committed to. At times, fidelity can mean making a painful financial decision, not spending our money the way we would like to spend it, but on an ailing parent, on our kids' music lessons, on our, parents graduate, our partner's graduate degree. What did the woman who anointed Jesus give up to spend a year's wages on that act of devotion? Right? Yes, she could have spent it on the poor. She probably also had a lot of good things she could have done with that security. Right? It was costly to her, that moment of devotion. But she felt that faithfulness required her in that moment to use her resources to honor Jesus. At times, not always, but at times, fidelity can mean sacrificing our physical comfort, our physical needs, even natural ones like food and sleep, 
to accompany those we love. Any of us who have had a newborn baby understand this, right? The baby doesn't respect the schedule. Sacrifices must be made. It's painful. And in this moment, for this one night, Jesus was asking his friends to resist that physical need, that natural need. Stay up with me. I know you're tired. Please, stay up with me. Faithfulness means understanding what's needed in that moment to support relationship. And in that moment, watching awake with Jesus, praying with him, was what was needed. But their bodies just couldn't do it. And that's real too. Jesus seems to understand it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's part of the human experience, even with those we love. All humans struggle with faithfulness. Esther Perel is a relationship counselor, a researcher, an author, a speaker who's done a lot of work around infidelity in intimate relationships. This is her most recent book. It's it's a fascinating read called The State of Affairs. And in it, she seeks not simply to assign blame or prescribe answers to folks struggling with infidelity. She seeks to understand the reasons that underlay cheating. She wants to understand the contributing factors in any given circumstance. She knows that sexual desire alone doesn't cause most people to cheat. There are other things going on in the relationship, other contributing factors. The infidelity is often the symptom of a bigger problem in the relationship. And as Perel notes, some people feel really threatened or resentful of her trying to investigate and name that, that there are reasons this affair happened beyond that guy's a scumbag. But Perel is clear, understanding the circumstances, understanding the affair is not the same as justifying it. Infidelity can be wrong. It can be unjustifiable. It can also be understandable. Both are true. Jesus seems to understand his friends will fail him. It's costly for him when they do. You can hear the like, oh, really, guys, exasperation in his voice when he comes back the second and then the third time and they've still fallen asleep again. But even as he's disappointed, even as his worst suspicions are already being confirmed, Jesus sees beyond the lapse. You get the sense that for him, this particular failure isn't actually a deal breaker. He says, you will all fall away, but after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So remember, they're in Jerusalem. That's like on the other side of the country. And he's telling them, I'm going to meet you back at home. After it all goes down, I'll see you in Galilee. He's accepting their weakness. He's accepting that they're going to fail him. And he's promising to see them on the other side of it. That's really hopeful for Jesus' friends. It's also hopeful for all of us who will inevitably fail those we love. And this brings me to our last, fourth and final insight on fidelity from this passage with Jesus. Lesson number four, Jesus himself is able to model fidelity for us and empower us to remain faithful as he is faithful. 
Jesus himself is able to model fidelity for us and empower us to remain faithful as he is faithful. These passages aren't just about Jesus' friends struggling to be faithful to Jesus. That's the angle we've been taking this whole time. But there's another thing happening here. These passages are also about Jesus struggling to be faithful to God. That's the heart of Gethsemane. We see the struggle of Jesus in his humanity. He knows the end is near. He knows it's going to be painful. It's going to suck. It will be bloody. It will be costly. He knows. No part of him wants to go through it. Right? If there could be any other way, make a way, oh God, he prays. But Jesus also knows and understands in his bones something else. He knows it's necessary. Perhaps it helps, particularly in this moment, that he is both fully human and somehow filled with the Spirit of God, which maybe in this moment reminds him, gives him a bit of perspective that this painful end is ultimately the climax of what he was sent to do. He knows that faithfulness to the God he loves and is loved by, the triune God, requires this. And so with the help of the Spirit, he can pray, Oh, not my will. Your will be done. This, for Jesus, is faithfulness. This is fidelity. It's a fidelity that will endure his capture. It will endure his trial. It will endure his beating, the ridicule. A fidelity that will endure all of his friends falling away. It will endure death on a cross. The faithfulness of Jesus towards his friends, towards those he loves, towards all of us in this room, then becomes this important facet, this important lens on the greater story the Bible is telling, that God, the triune God, wants to demonstrate relational faithfulness to all of us. That God is pursuing us, that God fulfills God's covenantal commitments to humanity. And the hope in Jesus is that God goes as far as even embodying the human experience to live out that faithfulness so that we can find friendship and fellowship in our struggles to remain faithful. And we can find freedom and hope through the empowerment of that same Holy Spirit to live into greater fidelity in our relationships with one another and our relationships with God's self. Amen? Jesus himself lives a life of faithfulness to God and to humanity even unto death. And God celebrates that faithfulness through resurrection. That is the Easter story. And God invites us to, to hope for a life beyond sacrifice. A life that remains caught up in a God who is love, because love is at the center of the way we are living. And with the sending of God's spirit, that same spirit that encouraged Jesus in his frailest moments. God invites us into an experience in this life in which the Holy Spirit can assist us in our weakness and yield fruit that we could not yield ourselves. As Paul names in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. 
fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. So as we end, I just want to make some space this morning for us to lean into, call on the help of the Spirit for us to grow in faithfulness in our relationships. So I'm just going to end with a contemplative moment for us to kind of call upon God's spirit in the same way that I believe Jesus was doing in that garden and invite the spirit to give us the strength to make choices to pursue fidelity in our relationships. So why don't you join me? You can close your eyes, whatever's going to be comfortable for you. And I'm going to say, Spirit, we invite you to be present with us. And I ask that you would help highlight one particular relationship, any relationship, in which we feel challenged to embody fidelity to a person we love. Would you highlight a relationship in which we feel challenged to embody fidelity to someone we love? As that relationship comes to mind, Spirit, I ask that you would help us reflect on in what ways have our actions toward this person built up relationship? In what ways have they broken down relationship? In what ways has this person's actions towards us built up relationship? In what ways have they broken down relationship? Spirit, in what ways have our actions matched our words in this relationship? Where have they not? Now, oh God, I ask, we, we bring forward the question, what kind of actions might we need in this moment to bring healing and intimacy? What's the need of this moment if there's going to be healing and restoration in this relationship? Finally, God, we invite you by your spirit to be the one empowering us with the courage, the patience, the strength, the honesty to live out actions that would bring healing, actions that would bring growth. Where we feel resistance, God, we rely on you all the more. Would we be people who model faithfulness just as you have been modeling it towards us? Amen.